You're listening to the Charity Champions Podcast. Each year, TFNB Your Bank for Life chooses six nonprofits from around Central Texas to recognize as Charity Champions. Tonight's Charity Champion is... Champions enjoy live on-field presentations at Baylor University home football and basketball games, online broadcast and print marketing exposure, and world-class leadership development through 360 Solutions, all at no cost to the nonprofit. In this podcast, we want to get to know our Charity Champions a little better. We're bringing those who help and those who have been helped into the studio to hear the stories behind the champions. On this episode, Emotional Intelligence with Chip Wilson. Why do we do things sometimes that are irrational or that we regret or that we don't handle things the way that we would like to? It comes back to our emotions. It does not come back to logic. We're still social distancing because of COVID-19, so Chip Wilson is back on Zoom with leaders from our 36 charity champions. This is the audio version of that call. Catch the video version on our website, charitychampions.org. And now, here's Chip. Some of you have been through the course that I've done before on emotional intelligence. It's probably, in my opinion, one of the most important organizational skills that leaders need to possess. And there is a significant difference between IQ and EQ is what they call it, which is the emotional uh, quotient. And so IQ is something that we are born with. I believe that it's somewhat static. You cannot increase or decrease your IQ. That's something that you have. Emotional intelligence, on the other hand, is something that can fluctuate. It can change. You can develop it. You can grow with it. It's something that you can master over a period of time if you understand the skills and work at it. And to give you an example, or I guess a quick analogy of the difference between IQ and EQ and how they are different, you can have both or you can lack one or the other, but EQ is something you can grow. So in 2007, um, some of you might remember this story. Some of you might be too young to remember, but there was, a, there was an astronaut. Lisa is her name. I, I won't get into too much detail, but she's an astronaut, and she lived in Houston and worked for NASA, and a bizarre story happened. She one day woke up. She put on a trench coat. She put on a wig. She put on a diaper, of all things, and she got in her car, and she drove 1,000 miles to Orlando, Florida, to confront a 30-year-old woman in the parking lot of an international airport. And when she got there, she asked the woman to roll down her window, and she cracked it about this much, and she stuck a BB gun through the window and held this woman at gunpoint. And what they found out, long story short, is that this woman is an astronaut for NASA that was in a having an affair with another astronaut, and there was a, another woman who was in the middle of the mix, and it made her so upset and so irate that she threw all caution out the window, took all sense of what was normal, and did something that is irrational. She's a married woman with three children, an astronaut, but yet one day just something snapped and she went and did this. Now the question then becomes, is this woman intelligent? Well, is her IQ high? I don't think any of us would argue that to become an astronaut and to work for NASA, your intelligence level has to be extremely high. I mean, there's very few astronauts in this world, and she's one of them. But yet, her emotional intelligence, at least on that day, was irrational, the, the thought process. So it's not IQ, 
It's EQ. It's your ability to manage uh, your behavior and your emotions. When we get into this, we'll talk about how stimulus and response is the best way to control emotional intelligence is to be able to put space between stimulus and response, meaning something happens, a trigger happens, and the more space that we put between what happens and how we respond to it, the greater our ability to manage the outcomes of our life. If we rewind all the way back and we start looking at why do we do things sometimes that are irrational or that we regret or that we don't handle things the way that we would like to, it comes back to our emotions. It does not come back to logic, to sometimes how smart we are. So when we get into this, I'll start by understanding some of the psychology of what emotional intelligence is and where it comes from. And again, I apologize for some of you that have been through my courses. This is kind of the foundational piece of a lot of the leadership stuff that I do because it is so absolutely important that you understand how the brain is wired, how handling our emotions, dealing with other people is critical to being an effective leader. So in the center of our brain, about the size of a walnut, about this big, is what's called the amygdala. In the front of our brain, which kind of a, I have a bigger forehead than most, but let's just say right up here, this is the frontal cortex or the prefrontal cortex. This is where logic happens. So in the center of our brain, the amygdala is where all emotion happens. I truly believe that we are emotional beings first that justify with logic or deal with logic. We are not logical beings that have to deal with emotions. So if that being said, if we are emotional beings first that justify with logic, then that means everything that happens to us in life has to be filtered through emotion first, filtered through our amygdala first. So the basic example that I talk about to show how this works is that let's say that it's getting dark, but I've decided to go out for a hike in the woods and I'm hiking and everything's fine. And all of a sudden I look down and I'm about to step on a rattlesnake. What instantly happens to my body? I freeze. My heart starts pounding. Maybe I start sweating. Maybe I, I, I turn quickly to run away. There's different reactions. All of us would react differently when we think we're about to step on a rattlesnake. Now, as my eyes adjust, I realize that that is not a rattlesnake. That's actually just a stick that I thought was a rattlesnake. So what happens at this moment? When I think it's a snake, instantly my amygdala sends out signals to the rest of my body that says, we're about to die. We're about to be in real danger. And so when it sends out these signals to my, to my heart, to my lungs, to my, to my brain, every aspect, it's saying, you know, danger, 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 so that logically my body can react and say, okay, we have to protect ourselves. But it was an emotion first through the amygdala that the signals were sent out. Now, as my eyes adjust and I realize that that is a stick, it is not a snake, then the frontal cortex sends logic back to the emotion center of our brain that says, we're not going to die. This is actually a stick. It's not harmful. You've overreacted yet again, amygdala. Chill out. You're fine. So the amygdala sends out all these signals to the heart. Slow down. You're okay. To my sweat glands. To you know, to everything else, my muscles, it says, you're going to be okay. Don't worry about it. And we slowly start to relax. That happens in almost every aspect of our life. We are emotional beings that look for logic to justify the way we feel. We are not these logical beings that walk around. Emotions come secondary till after we rationalize everything. It doesn't work that way. 
So if we understand that, if we understand that emotions drive behavior, not logic, and as leaders, we want to people to change and modify behavior to execute on the strategies that we put in place or the problems in the world we're trying to fix. If we want them to work better as a team, we want them to communicate more effectively, maybe even holistic as a person, we want them to be better parents and spouses and friends and coworkers, then we have to truly understand how emotional intelligence works. I'm gonna walk you through some basic models that we teach and a lot of the courses around emotional intelligence. So the first is we have the external world, we have our paradigm, and then we have our internal experience. A paradigm, and we've talked about this before, a paradigm is a filter in which we see the world through. So if I take my glasses off, I see the world one way. Right now I'm looking at all of you on the screen and you're not as clear as if I put on my glasses, now I can see you differently. So think of a paradigm as a filter in which we see the world through. Well, we have our external world. These are the things that are going on, things around us. So in the analogy with the snake and the stick, that's the external world. I have my paradigm in which I see it through, which creates my internal experience. What am I feeling when I think it's a snake versus what am I feeling when I know that it's a stick? And so the external world and the internal world, everything that we do starts with the paradigm in which we see the world through. Now, the good news is, I believe, that we have a choice on the way we see situations, that we have a choice on the paradigms that we choose to see the world through. When we talk about these, there's four major paradigms that our research that's gone all the way back with Roger Allen and Preston Pond and other organizational PhDs that have studied this for years that, that I bought their organization and have been doing this for 25 years myself now, is we found that there's really four major paradigms that the majority of us see the world through, specifically at work, but it kind of falls into every aspect of our life. We have the external world here, we have our internal experiences, and the four paradigms that we typically see the world through are these. We'll start with the first one, which is fear. When we see the world through a fear paradigm, meaning when we wake up in the morning, and we see everything as a threat to us. We tend to be more reactive. We're not in control, something else is in control, so we're somewhat paralyzed to what's happening. We, we tend to feel at times inadequate or addicted to security or pleasure, fearful, suspicious, blaming. Our life is a very much a have-to mentality. Now when I talk about the fear paradigm, you know, we're living in a time right now in the world that I would say the fear paradigm is a very powerful tool, personally, organizationally, globally, government-wise. I mean, we could spend, if I unmuted everybody, we could spend a tremendous amount of time and never leave the emotional intelligence side of the fear paradigm. And how we see what we feel, what we believe, and how are we getting our information and, and from that information, how do we filter through it and make decisions? Now, there's a term in, called motivation biased or cognitive biased. What motivation biased or cognitive biased is, simply put, is we look for evidence to support the way we feel. So, for example, as if I feel scared because of the coronavirus, I will see evidence everywhere from other people and other things that I see to support the way that I feel. And if I hear contrary evidence to the way I feel, it may even anger me. It may make me upset and suspicious and judgmental towards people that say things that I disagree with because the way I'm feeling. 
Very few of us have the ability to hear multiple points of view without bias and be able to decipher for ourselves what is true and what's not true. If we go back a hundred years, we, we heard about news through storytelling from one or two people that would bring messages into our, our towns and tell us, here's what's going on in the rest of the world. And then as TV was invented and other stuff, there was one or two channels that we got most of our news from. And we would sit every night at six o'clock and listen to the news and they would tell us what was going on on the other side of the planet. And if we fast forward, information has become a tool and it has also become a business. So when you start looking at 24 hours a day, seven days a week, news information, and there's lots of different channels that all need our attention because that's how they make money. They have to elevate the level of excitement, if you want to call it that, or drama, so that we will tune in and pay attention. That raises ratings, that raises revenue. And so, and because there's so much competition, everybody's fighting to get our attention. That in lies a problem for all of us, and that is, who do we believe? There's contradictory evidence everywhere, and we don't know what to believe. We, we, we want to trust. We want to believe the, that they're telling us the truth, but when you have one side saying one thing and another side saying another, it is very difficult. So our brain looks for the easiest path to reconcile what's going on, so we emotionally pick a side almost, and then we look for evidence to support the way we feel. And then we get frustrated and angry and upset when others don't feel the same way we do with contradictory evidence. And so it spirals to, unfortunately, where we are sometimes in the world, especially when it comes to news and government and everything else. So fear is a very powerful motivator of behavior. And we've seen that used for many, many years in all kinds of different settings. The second is duty. And a duty paradigm is where we wake up in the morning and put on our glasses of duty and we say, I'm okay conditionally. These are the things that I'm supposed to be doing. And as long as I do these things, then I'm going to be okay. I should be safe if I follow through with what my duty is. I tend to conform. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to cause any problems. I want to get along. And so it's kind of that herd mentality. Stereotypical thinking, meaning if if this is what they're saying, then it must be true. If my friends to the left and the right think it, then I must be crazy if I don't think it. So I'm going to think the way everyone thinks I should think. I'm addicted to approval. Like if I push back or disagree, it will weaken my stance with the group or with authority or with who's in charge. And I don't want to do that. So I'm addicted to my boss, my spouse, my friends, whoever it might be in my world, I want to make sure that they understand that I'm with them, I agree with them on everything. Even if secretly or quietly I disagree, I don't want that. If I'm somewhat in this duty paradigm, I want everybody to believe that I agree with them, whatever that is. I'm resigned to the fact that it is what it is. Life is going to be this way, that this is the way it, it was intended, and so I'm going to do those things. I'm somewhat guilt-ridden because I've I've not been able to do some of the stuff that I wanted to do, so I feel bad, so I'm going to stay more loyal to what others want to do because I'm guilty about my past and dependency, and my life is filled with I should have or I should do certain things. Now, I want you to understand that as we move up here, you're going to think, well, this is bad and this is good. And I will say that there are some characteristics of that, but when I get to the end, I'm going to explain to you why some of these are needed at certain times. They just can't be our primary drivers. So the next is achievement. 
And this paradigm is when we start looking at things through the paradigm of I have goals, there's things I want to accomplish for myself, for my family, for others. And so when I wake up every day, I'm somewhat motivated to be able to go out and do the things that I want to do. So I'm goal-oriented. The downside is I must always prove myself either to myself or to other people. I feel stressed a lot. I feel hurried. I always feel behind. There's never enough. If, if I achieve this goal, there's another goal right behind it that I haven't achieved. I'm addicted to what psychologists call the ego needs, which is fulfilling this desire inside of myself to be bigger, greater, better. I'm a very competitive. I tend to be independent. The thought in the brain is I ought to do more. I ought to, I ought to. Instead of here, I should, or at fear, I have to. Now, the last one, or the fourth one, is integrity. And integrity is not something that I can define for you or that someone else can define for you. There are some common denominators. I mean, there are Ten Commandments. There's a number of things that kind of give us clear direction on what we should and shouldn't do. But integrity has a lot to do with your internal compass and, and the guidelines in which you understand is right and wrong or negotiables and non-negotiables in your life. So when you wake up in the morning and you put on your glasses in a sense and you look at the world through an integrity model, you're conscious about what you're doing. You're, you're not living in a reactive mode. You're living in a very active mode. You, you have unconditional acceptance of things that you cannot control. You tend to feel adequate and responsible for yourself and for the people that are uh, reporting to you. You're service-oriented. You tend to be more trusting and interdependent and you can be vulnerable in front of other people and you live your life through a paradigm of I choose to do these things because I've thought about them I've made choices and I choose to do these things versus those things now these four paradigms are very powerful paradigms and they're also in my opinion they're choices I'm not saying easy choices but when we wake up in the morning we get to choose the paradigm in which we want to tackle the day with when I say that I said before, this is bad and this is good, the way we look at it, I would say absolutely. There is a belief system that if we could live our life 100% through the integrity paradigm, that would be awesome. And, and that's ideal. I'm just not sure it's realistic. Achievement. You know, everything, the chair that you're sitting on right now, the, the video equipment that we're watching, the computer, the air conditioning that you're enjoying right now, the internet. I mean, I, I could go through everything down to the the basics of the carpet in your house and everything else, somebody had to have a mindset of let's fix a problem. Let's, let's achieve something more than what we've already done. And sometimes achievement creates things to fix a lot of problems. There are tons of scientists and doctors right now trying to figure out how to beat coronavirus. Without achievement, without that drive, that goal-oriented, competitive, independent spirit, we would have problems. We, we wouldn't have solved polio. We wouldn't solve you know, a lot of the problems that we've seen over the years with viruses. And so achievement is a good thing as long as it's fighting something or working towards something that's beneficial, beneficial for all. Because achievement, as we know, can go the opposite direction. People can achieve things for the wrong reason. Same with duty. We have lots of people on the front line right now, from service workers to nurses and doctors and first responders and that have not had, quote, a break at all. Matter of fact, they've worked harder during this whole thing. They put themselves at risk. They continue to put themselves at risk, and they will do it day after day after day for a long period of time because of a sense of duty, because this is what they've been called to do. This is what they believe they should be doing. Whether it's 
based on their integrity paradigm or our achievement paradigm, they're overcoming their fear. They're not saying, I'm not saying they don't have fear. They definitely do, but they're overcoming it because of this high sense of duty. Under fear, at times this is important. If someone's breaking into your home at night and your job is to protect your family, fear is a motivator to do what you need to do. So there are times that fear is absolutely a survival mechanism that God has created and put inside of us so that so that we can protect and take care of those that we need to protect, and including ourselves. So these paradigms should and are used on a regular basis. The goal is to spend as much time seeing your world through this paradigm and try and spend less time down here. This is a on-purpose paradigm, and some of these are reactive paradigms. If you understand that, so we have our external world, the paradigms in which we see the world through, which create our internal experience. We make decisions. We feel the way we feel based on past experiences. This constellation of past experiences or trainings that we've been through or people that we've met, whatever it might be, this are, are all like little bitty file cabinets in our brain of these past experiences that we tuck away and we hide and we put them there and we pull on them when we need them. So at the very bottom, and hopefully you can see this, we have what's called the response chain. And the response chain is, is what everybody that's on the Zoom call right now, this is what we go through when we're faced with decisions. The first is a key moment. And let me talk about what a key moment is. A key moment is a decision point throughout your day. Typically, we focus on key moments that are hard to conquer. They're, they're, they're bigger decisions. But a key moment can be very small decisions as well. A key moment is a decision point. So let's say, for example, you decide, you know what? I'd, I've decided that I want to get in shape. I want to lose a little bit of weight. I want to get in shape. I want to live a healthier lifestyle. So when you wake up in the morning, you have a routine and you go through that routine and you come and you get in your car and you drive to the office or wherever you go to work. And when you get there, there is someone who has brought donuts and kolaches. They actually got up early, drove to West, got all the best stuff, brought it back. It's warm. It's sitting in the break room at the office. And there's also a couple of protein shakes that are in the refrigerator. This is a key moment. Not a significant key moment in the big picture of life, but it is a key moment that we have to make a decision. Our brain instantly and quickly goes through what's called the response chain. So the very first thing is our paradigm. We walk into the break room, we see donuts, and we know there's protein shakes in the fridge. What paradigm did we wake up with in the morning and start making decisions through? If it's fear, I'm going to walk in and say, there's only eight kolaches left. I have willpower till about 10 a.m., but if I don't take a kolache or two right now, by 10 a.m., these are all going to be gone. And I know I'm not going to have enough willpower to make it all day long, knowing that there's kolaches in the break room or donuts. So the fear paradigm kicks in, and I might eat the kolaches even though it's not what I'm trying to do. It doesn't help me. Or duty. I feel like, you know, if Mary got up really early, drove all the way to West and came back and brought these, if I don't eat one of these donuts and one of these kolaches, Mary's going to think that I'm not appreciative of the effort and work that she put in. It's my job to make her feel good. Regardless of the fact that I'm trying to lose weight, I'm going to eat one just because I don't want her to think that I don't value her and her hard work and effort to go out of her way to do this for us. Now, under achievement, I look at it differently and I might say, I'm going to go tell Mary, I really appreciate the hard work and effort, but right now I'm really trying to work hard to achieve a certain goal within a period of time 
to lose weight and to exercise because I have a triathlon that's coming up or I just, it's swimsuit weather, whatever the case might, whatever my goal is, I want to achieve something. So I hope you understand. Under integrity, this is where we make life decisions, not short-term goal decisions or duty or fear decisions. This is where I say, if I don't change my behaviors, I may not be here for another 30 years, 40 years, whatever it is, to see my kids grow up, my grandkids, everything else. I have to make some life decisions, and one of those might be to eliminate sugar out of my life or to eliminate whatever it might be. These are, these are conscious decisions that I'm making, and Mary and others hopefully will see that they know over a period of time that even though they bought donuts, Chip probably won't eat them. By the way, that's not going to happen with me. But if I made that decision, hopefully over a period of time, they would say, we see that this is a decision that Chip has made. It's not personal towards me. It's a life decision. And he has a high level of integrity that even if there's donuts there, he probably won't eat them. So the way the brain works, we start with the key moment. We're going to use this as a basic example. When the key moment happens, we choose a paradigm. And from that paradigm, we create a meaning. The meaning again, comes from past experiences in our life. Typically, everything that we see, this meaning that we've wrapped around it is comes from something in the past, good or bad experiences, something we've learned, something that we should have learned, something we've experienced from other people. And because of this meaning, which is extremely powerful, it helps us create the feeling, the feelings that we get when we have to make a choice. The feelings then help dictate our behavior. And so our brain quickly goes to this response chain. Key moment happens. I walk into the break room, there's donuts. I know what, I I have a conscious paradigm in which I'm seeing those donuts through. It instantly creates a meaning in my brain that creates a feeling which creates my behavior. That behavior then leads to a pathway of success or or a pathway of survival. And those two pathways, I could get into a whole another session on how those two pathways become habit forming. But there's a a couple of different books out right now and there's a lot of research around habits. Habits are extremely difficult to, to create or to change because we are creatures of habit and we've already created a bunch of habits. And so when I teach this workshop and I ask people to identify a key moment in your life and a key moment can be significant or a key moment can be something that's somewhat insignificant, like what you eat for breakfast. But when we look at identifying a key moment in your life that's reoccurring, that you're struggling to overcome, what does that look like? And then I'll have people identify these key moments. I know, I recognize some of you on this call, you've been through this exercise with me, where we identify a reoccurring key moment, we look at the paradigm, the meaning, feeling, and the behavior, and the results. The story that I tell, and again, I apologize if some of you have heard it, but it's, it's a pretty powerful story is years ago, I used to do these two-day, two-and-a-half-day retreats on emotional intelligence, and we, we called it life mastery, and really looking at why we do what we do, and how do we modify and change behaviors to get what we want. We had 20 or 30 people come out to the ranch for the weekend, and there was two people that I remember very specifically that came out. There was, uh, we'll call them Linda and Bubba, and Linda and Bubba came out, and when we very first started the retreat, We would go around the room and everybody would have to say who they are and where they're from and their background and why they decided to come. And as we're going around the room, people are talking and saying, and and we get to Linda. And Linda says, hi, my name is Linda. And, you know, I grew up here in Waco and I've 
somebody told me about this weekend and I love to learn and I, I want to get better as a human being and so on and so forth. And so that's why I'm here. Thank you, Linda. Then we go to Bubba sitting right next to her. And he says, my name is Bubba. I'm married to Linda. And the reason why I'm here is because Linda made me come to this thing. I don't want to be here. My life's pretty good. I don't need anything different. I don't believe in this fluffy stuff, to be honest with you. I, I think it's good for y'all. If you if y'all enjoy this stuff, y'all enjoy it. But I'm here because I told her I'd be here, but I'm going I'm going to the deer lease the rest of the weekend. I won't be here tomorrow or the next day, but I told her, I promised her I'd come for tonight. We said, we appreciate that, Bubba. So we go around the room, so on and so forth. Well, as we start this, there's really three things that we do when we look at emotional intelligence. Uh, it's called a lifeline. Simply put, you draw a straight line across a blank sheet of paper, and you start with where you were born all the way up to where you are right now. On this line, you talk about experiences in your life that were either above the line or below the line, and you draw a graph. So say, for example, I was born, my parents were, uh, my dad's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I was born in McKeesport, Pennsylvania, a handful of years ago, and the first memory I have as a child, I, I remember it, we had moved to Sacramento, California, and, and I was in kindergarten, and it was, a, it was in school, and so it was a pleasant experience, so I wrote down what that is, and that's above the line. Then I can remember the first negative experience I ever had, and that was a girl that I thought I was in love with in first grade that broke up with me and broke my heart, and I thought I'd never be in love again and devastated, one of those kind of things, okay? So you can be as much or as little as you want to put into detail, and you go through and you talk about your life experiences, big and negative. We break out, we do this because we look at where we've been, taking stock of where we are, and then forecasting the future of where we want to be. So this first evening, it's the short period of the retreat, but it's looking back because there's our life, you know, we, we should spend most of our life looking through the windshield of life and not the rearview mirror of life. But there is a lot of people that spend their entire life driving, looking in the rearview mirror, telling themselves stories of their past, which is dictating what their future looks like. And we're trying to get people to switch out of that and change that. So we break out, we do this, we come back, and we didn't want to put anybody on the spot, so we asked for volunteers. And we're all sitting in kind of a horseshoe and we say, who would like to share? A number of people say, I'll do it. And they get up and they put their board on an easel and they talk about their life experiences from where they were to where they are. And they talk about getting married and their kids and you know, maybe having a bankruptcy with their business. And then they go back to having a successful career, whatever it might be. Shockingly, out of nowhere, we hear, I'll go. And I was more surprised than anybody. Here's Bubba. Bubba stands up, comes up to the front of the room, puts his easel up there or puts his chart up there. And he starts off by saying, you know, I, I came here and I did this exercise because I just I just thought that, you know, I'd just do my duty and be here this week, you know, Friday night. So I can go to the deer lease the rest of the weekend and Linda would be happy with me. But, well, well, here goes. And he points to his sign. He says, you know, I was born in 1947 and my parents and I had a pretty good life and so on and so forth. And now we're sitting there and we see his graph. So we know what's above the line and we see in the future this way below the line coming. So we, we know where the story is headed. So he's talking about some of the stuff. And then right about high school age, college age, we start to see him go off into a ditch. And he says, right here, started hanging out with some of the, what I thought to be my friends, but they ended up being some people I probably shouldn't have hung out with. And, 
And then I lost my job, and that put me into depression. Now, I didn't call it depression because I didn't get checked out, but, you know, I believe that's what it was. And then you start seeing here, I started making even worse decisions. And, and then when stress kicks in and my friends start giving me bad advice and I'm, I'm seeing world, the world through fear uh, and duty to the small handful of people that are chirping in my ear because the, the ones that I love and care about are tired of putting up with me. I start making worse decisions, and you can see right here, I ended up going to jail, ended up getting caught on a couple of different things. I wrecked my truck. I didn't have any money. I got kicked out of my house. Every friend that I ever had disowned me, and you see where he's at, but you see where he's going, you know, because we see the graph, we know, and at the very, very bottom of this graph, he stops and he pauses for a second, and no joke, with a tear in his eye, he says, this is where I met Linda. And all of a sudden, you, you see where he's headed. And he says, and I met Linda. And Linda, for some reason, saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And Linda started pouring into me, being somebody that I never thought I needed or wanted. And she didn't give up on me. And you can see here, I got a job. And then, then from here, I started changing out people in my life. Because Linda didn't want to put up with the nonsense that I was living and I had to make some choices between Linda and the life that I had been living in. And frankly, I felt like Linda was a better decision at that point, And I hadn't made any good decisions in a long time. And you start seeing what he's talking about. And he says, and then by the grace of God, she married me. And then we had a couple of kids. And then I started my own construction company and, and so on and so forth. And, and he said, and I have to add one more thing. And at the very end, he goes over here and he says, and she drug my ass to Chip Wilson's house for this retreat. And not a single person in there had a dry eye. Not one. Because Linda was bawling. Just bawling. And the reason why she was bawling is because Bubba had this hard shell around him. And he opened up on occasion to her. But even to her, he was a hard shell. And for him, in a short period of time... To go from, I don't want to be here, I'm going to the deer lease as soon as I can, to standing up and talking about these things and talking about his life, he'd be dead or in jail if it wasn't for her, pointed out point by point the positive things that have happened in his life since he met her, the affirmation to her and the feeling that she had, even though he was talking about his life, he was really talking about her, her love and admiration just skyrocketed the feeling he talked about the meaning of why he was where he was and so the feelings that he had that created the behavior for him to stand up and do this when he was talking about those meanings and giving her the credit for where he was and her love for him and the group showing him love it was like crazy that this man that went from I'm Billy Badass, I'm just here because my wife drugged me here, ha, 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 I'm going to the deer lease as soon as I can, to a guy who stands up within three hours and talks about his life. It was the meaning changed for him somewhere, somehow. The rest of the night, nobody wanted to go next because Bubba's was so powerful and, and, and so good that everybody's like, where do we go from here? The night was wrapping up. You know, we said our goodbyes, so on and so forth. Bubba was one of the very last people to leave. He helped clean up and do all kinds of stuff, and he stayed. And he turned and he looked at me when he was leaving, and he said, what kind of breakfast burritos do you like? And I said, well, why do you ask? He said, well, 
I make a killer breakfast burrito and I'm going to bring some tomorrow morning for everybody. And I want to know specifically what kind do you like? And I said, well, I thought you were going to the deer lease. And he said, the deer lease can wait. He said, when I saw the impact this had on my wife, I think this is good for her and I should probably be here for her. And I smiled a little bit and I said, Bubba, I appreciate you doing this for your wife, but I'd be hard pressed to think that you're not going to get a little bit out of this as well. He said, well, you know, I might get something out of it, but this is really for Linda. This is important to her. So I think I'll be back tomorrow morning. Sure enough, you know, 7 a.m. He's ringing my doorbell with a whole box full of breakfast burritos and he's there. And the rest of the weekend, he was there fully engaged, you know, the whole thing. And at the end of it, when we kind of wrapped it up, he's been a major fan for a long time because of it. He says, Chip, my paradigm that I was seeing the world through was skewed. It was wrong. I was seeing the world through fear and duty to people that were not good influences, not good anchors in my life. And when I switched to say, you know, I want to start living more through an integrity paradigm and who helps me define that? My wife, my kids, you know, what, whatever it is that your anchor is. And I want to achieve more because I see that I can achieve more and get out of this. He started shifting the meaning of past experiences from this is who I am to this is who I want to be. And shifting this meaning is a big portion of it. You know, there's a, you know, sometimes you'll ask people that have been smokers for a long time and you'll say, Hey, I noticed you haven't been smoking lately. And they're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to quit. Where if you have them shift just a little bit and you say, Hey, I, I've noticed you haven't been taking smoke breaks. And they say, yes, I used to be a smoker. Now I know that seems totally small, insignificant in the big picture. But I want you to understand that when you shift a meaning personally, when you say, I'm trying to quit, in your mind what you're saying is, I'm still a smoker trying to overcome it. When you shift it and you say, I quit smoking, now I don't, it's almost a shift in your brain, this small paradigm that changes the meaning of what smoking is to you so it creates a different feeling which creates a different behavior. In these sessions I talk about, especially with emotional intelligence, that the stories that we tell, us, tell ourselves about our past become more powerful influencers about our current future than what we realize. And as we all know, stories tend to change and morph as time passes. So we tell ourselves stories about things that happened 20 years ago that influence us today that maybe those stories have changed so much they don't even match what really happened. They don't even match reality. But we continue to be who we are because of the stories that we tell ourselves about the meaning that we attach to whatever that was years ago. I don't do a lot of psychotherapy about going back to your childhood and all this other stuff to try and figure out where you're needing to go. But there is some power in looking at where I've been, why I am who I am, and now making a conscious decision to see myself differently, to change my paradigm, change the meaning, the feeling, and the behavior so that I become or start influencing a different result. The last thing that I'll say, and then we'll kind of open it up, is about how do we start shifting? Step one is to be clearly aware of your key moments, things that you do that are reoccurring. Um, and, and this whole story with Bubba and Linda, there's a whole bunch of other stories about how they interact with each other and how they see what they do. And uh, there's a whole story, some of you have heard about the washing machine and everything, and I'll tell you all at a, a later date about that one. But 
identifying these key moments in your life, these areas where you struggle, like you're, you're stuck doing the same thing over and over again. You struggle with it and understand which paradigm you're seeing it through and then understanding what meaning you've attached to it, the feelings and the behaviors. And you can start shifting. The way you do that is you start shifting habits. You don't have to shift all your habits at once, but you shift you know, your habits over time. And the way you do this, simply put, is it's called uh, the habit loop. The first is you have a trigger. That's a key moment. You have a trigger, you have a response, and you have a result. The trigger you're always going to have. Every morning when you wake up, there's going to be a trigger. That is, what do I eat for breakfast? Somebody's always going to have something at the office you shouldn't be eating. And that trigger is always going to be there. Smokers, if they put their cigarettes right here, or they're on their nightstand or whatever, if that's what it is, or spending, or we could go through all kinds of different habits. There is a trigger. The trigger has a, a routine or a response to it. That routine produces a result. The only thing you have control over is the routine. You don't have control over the, the trigger. So you can't stop people from bringing donuts to the office. You can't stop you know, the kids from annoying you when they're home for weeks at a time. You can't stop certain things. But you can change the routine. That's what you have control over, which will influence the result. So I'll give you a simple example. The best way to create a new habit is to tie it to an existing habit. A lot of people try to create a new habit not tied to an existing one, and it makes it more difficult. So, if, for example, if you decide, I want, to, uh, I want to start taking vitamins, supplements, whatever it might be, just something basic. What is your routine in the morning? Well, if your routine is I wake up, you know, in my routine is I wake up, I let the dogs out, you know, I take a shower, get ready, all that good stuff. I eat something, I go to the office. Well, I know I always brush my teeth every morning. So what you do is next to your toothbrush, that's where you set your vitamins. And what you do is you say, okay, every time I brush my teeth, I take my vitamins. Brush my teeth, take my vitamins. Brush my teeth, take my vitamins. You've heard over 30 days, 60 days, it becomes a habit. Well, eventually, 60 days from now, it'll seem odd not to have your vitamins next to your toothbrush. That's how you get a new habit is you tie it to an existing habit. If you say, I'm going to start taking vitamins and you go to the grocery store and you buy a whole bunch of them and you have them, you know, in your car or on your desk or whatever, and there isn't a routine or a habit that you do there, it's going to be much tougher for you to stick with that habit over a long period of time. Make sense? So change the routine. You don't try and change the trigger because you really can't, but you can change your routine, which will influence a result. In closing, and then we're going to open it up, I believe, and I've said this year after year after year, and I continue to believe it, and that is, is that you become the average of the seven closest people in your life. And you have two types of people. You have situational people and you have on-purpose people. Situational people are these people in our life that are in our life because of a situation. We went to high school with them or college. Your, your wife or your husband's best friends are always around you. It's situational. They're, your coworkers are situational. There's all kinds of people in our life that are situational. And there's nothing wrong with situational people in our life. 
what on-purpose people are, are these are the people that we seek out, that we look for on purpose because they want to become more, be more, become a better person, and they have a like-minded idea of what success looks like, and we, frankly, become better people when we're around them. And these on-purpose people are out there. We just have to, on-purpose, find them. And they influence us. So if we become the average of the seven closest people in our life, I always challenge people when they hear this for the first time, if I was to give you great news or bad news about yourself, you, you won the lottery or you, you're, you have an illness, who are probably the first seven people you would share this with? And then when you look at those people, do they bring your average up or do they bring your average down overall? What common denominator do you have with them? And, and what is it that you talk about with these people? And again, are they making you better or are you making them better? When you look at the average, sometimes you realize that the seven closest people in your life are situational and you're usually the one trying to improve their life. It's rarely vice versa. Where others might say it's a 50-50 split and others say, you know what? The people in my life have grounded me and they are the reason I am who I am and they're constantly challenging me to get better. My challenge to you would be, if you look at the seven closest people in your life, and most of them are situational, and most of them are not pushing you in a direction that you know you want to be and that you want to live this way, seek out on-purpose people. Look for them. And shockingly enough, some of the most successful people I know will offer up their time and guidance and freely to people, And there's a lot of people that never take advantage of it. Never take advantage of it. It's offered, but they don't take it. I would challenge all of you to find on-purpose people in your life, meet with them regularly, set out what integrity looks like for you. What are your goals? What are your key moments that you struggle with that keep you from living this life? What meaning have you attached to these key moments? What feelings do they create? What behaviors are they causing you to do that make you live in a pathway of survival and not success and figure out a way to migrate more towards people that are on purpose in your life than people that are situational. It doesn't mean get rid of situational people. It just means make decisions and influence yourself through on purpose people and and they're out there and they want to be surrounded with like-minded people. Thanks for listening to the Charity Champions Podcast. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review us. This helps our podcast reach more listeners. Have a charity you'd like to nominate for next season? Visit charitychampions.org and look for the Nominate button at the top of the page. You can also find more information on this podcast and all Charity Champions at charitychampions.org. We'll see you next time.